Would you open your Bibles, please, to Revelation chapter 6? We have been looking at the process of God's judgments upon the world, which will take place during a period of time known as what? The tribulation, seven-year period of time in history future, and these judgments will be unleashed on the world when the kinsman redeemer of mankind and earth, the Lord Jesus Christ, opens each one of seven seals on the scrolled title deed to planet earth. The title deed that he alone is worthy to remove from God's hand and loosen, as we saw back in Revelation chapter 5 verse 7. We have learned already of the events which will occur when those first four seals are broken by the Lord Jesus. And they will bring forth the four horsemen of the apocalypse who represent, first of all, Satan's masterpiece, false Christ, who is otherwise known as the Antichrist. And then, and of course, he comes on a white horse. And the second horseman represented war and bloodshed. He was symbolized by that rider on what color horse? the red horse and then famine came on a black horse and he was followed by death riding upon a a sickly green colored pale horse and death was followed by who hell one fourth of the earth we are told would be affected by these grim reapers of deception and destruction deprivation and death and yet the lord jesus christ over in matthew 24 which is the Olivet Discourse, also known as the Little Apocalypse, the Little Unveiling or the Little Revelation, Matthew 24 and 25, the Lord told us that these four grim reapers, the four horsemen, are merely the beginning of sorrows. Things on earth will get progressively worse, just as a woman's labor pains get progressively worse until the time of the birth of her child. The tribulation will be like labor pains for planet Earth. They will, the tribulation period will increase both in um, frequency of pain and intensity of pain until the arrival of who? Of the Lord Jesus Christ himself at his second coming. Now in this lesson, which I have entitled refuge in the rock. I had about six different titles for this message, but this is the one that I settled on. We're going to take a look at the contents of the fifth seal, which tell us about the slain tribulation saints who sought true refuge in the rock. And who is the rock with a capital R? The Lord Jesus Christ. And we will also learn about the sixth seal which tells us of a massive worldwide shaking of both the heavens and the earth, which will cause the unsaved people to seek false refuge in the rocks, with a small r, the rocks of this earth, the mountains of this earth. Now, when we do get to chapter 7, which, Lord willing, will be next week, we will note that that chapter forms a parenthetical break before then the opening of the eighth seal, I mean not the eighth, the um, seventh seal, which is in chapter 8, verse 1. So we won't come to the seventh seal until chapter 8, verse 1. So let's begin now by looking at the first part of our outline, true refuge in the rock, and for that we'll look at chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. John says, and when he had opened the fifth seal, who does the he refer back to? Christ, the Lamb. Remember, it is the Lamb, the standing slain Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the one who is loosing each one of these seals. And when he had opened the fifth seal, John saw, he says, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. The last three seals we are going to find are somewhat different than the first four. And this is a common division that we'll be finding throughout the book of Revelation. The first four seals involved 
horsemen, right? And judgments. Whereas really these fifth seals, although they involve judgments, more or less they involve responses to judgment. This first seal, this fifth seal, I should say, contains the response of prayer by the slain souls of the martyred um, saints. The sixth seal, which we'll look at next, contains for us a judgment, yes, but also the response of the unsaved. And their response to judgment is that of great fear. And then the, the seventh seal, which, I, as I said, we won't look at until we get to chapter 8, but the seventh seal is a response from heaven, and it's a response of total silence. Now, with the loosing of the fifth seal, John's focus returns to a scene in heaven. Those first four seal judgments had taken John from this wonderful scene in heaven where he saw the throne and he who sits on the throne and he saw the 24 elders and the four living creatures and the emerald rainbow and and the, the transparent sea of glass in front of the throne and all those wonderful things. Well... He had gone from heaven then down to see the judgments on earth with the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Now we return to a scene in heaven with the fifth seal. So remember that uh, up and down movement pattern that we talked about in one of our introductory lessons? Here's where we were, the four horsemen. That's when we were on earth. Now we're going back up into heaven. So we'll find that we keep doing this throughout the book of Revelation. We'll be looking at things on earth, and we'll be going up to heaven, then we'll be looking at earth, and we'll be going up to heaven, and it'll just keep on happening. So with John, our eyes are now turned back toward heaven, and John sees the altar of heaven. And under it are the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. We read that in verse 9. Now we might ask, who are these disembodied souls that are standing there under heaven's altar? Well, who do you think they might be due to the fact that they are where? (laughs) They're in heaven. So who do you think they are, believers or unbelievers? Obviously, they're believers, or they would not be in heaven. These are the people who will be slain as martyrs during the tribulation period. There will be many people, I'm so happy to say, that will come, who will come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ during the tribulation period, during those seven years of tribulation. But many of those people, probably most of those people, will pay for their faith. They will pay for their testimony for Christ with their own lives. Now, Christ foretold, the Lord Jesus foretold of this tribulation persecution of believers over in Matthew 24. Remember, I said this is the parallel passage in the Olivet Discourse. After he had spoken about the four... um, four signs that would precede his second coming, the four signs which parallel the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Remember, the Lord had told his disciples that there would be false Christs who would deceive many. Then he told them that there would be wars and rumors of wars and famines and pestilences, all of which correspond perfectly to the first four seal judgments, as we've demonstrated. Well, after stating those four first four signs he then said remember these are merely the beginning of sorrows so we say this is just at the beginning of the tribulation period and then it's very interesting the next thing he talked about was the martyrdom of those who belong to him he said to his disciples in verse 9 of matthew 24 then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted And they shall kill you, and you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. So here again we have a correspondence with the Lord's fifth sign in the Olivet Discourse with the fifth seal in Revelation chapter 6. Now, although there have been many Christian martyrs in every single generation of the church age, and they say that there have been more martyred for their faith in Christ in this century than in all of the previous centuries put together. Yet there are reasons to believe that these souls which are seen by John under the altar in heaven 
here in Revelation chapter 6 that these souls do not represent church age saints. Why? Well, for one thing, the church, as we pointed out in lesson number 27, is represented by who? The 24 elders, exactly. Not by these souls under the altar. The church saints are represented by the 24 elders. Furthermore, the church saints will have been raptured. And I have given you in previous lessons many reasons for why we are teaching here a pre-tribulation rapture, that the rapture of the church occurs before these seven years of tribulation. So by this point in time, by the time of Revelation chapter 6, church saints will have already been raptured, and therefore what will they possess? Yes, thank you. A resurrected, glorified body. Because at the time of the rapture, that's when all church saints, whether they're dead or living, will receive their glorified, resurrected bodies. Yet, these people under the altar in heaven, which John sees when the fifth seal is open, do not have resurrected, glorified bodies. Because he tells us, John tells us, that he merely saw their souls. He says he sees their souls. This would indicate that they do not yet have a glorified body. It also, by the way, refutes the false teaching of soul sleep, which some of the cults teach, and even which some Christians mistakenly believe, that the soul goes to sleep with the body until the time of the resurrection time of the rapture. That is not true. This proves it because these souls, these people have been martyred on earth and even though they don't have their bodies yet, they do. their souls are in heaven. Now by the fact that these martyred believers ask for judgment, that's what they're asking for when they cry out in verse 10. Because of the fact that they're asking for judgment upon those on earth who had persecuted them and slain them, we further realize that they are not members of the church because their prayer here runs contrary to the way that church age saints, the way you and I are to pray. Are we to pray for our enemies to be slain? <laughs> no, we're not. I mean, you might be tempted to do that, but you are not to do that. Think, for example, of the Lord's own words in the... Um, Sermon on the Mount, when he said, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you. That doesn't mean pray for them to be killed either. It means pray in a good way, that they would be saved. And uh, anyway, that's the, what the Lord told us in the church age, that we are to, how we are to treat our enemies. And their prayer also indicates that their persecutors are still living on earth. Let's look at that verse. It's, they say there in verse 10, And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? Those who killed these souls are still living. They're still down there on earth. Therefore, they cannot represent church saints because a lot of the church saints who have been martyred, the ones who martyred them have been long dead. They aren't still living on the earth, if you follow what I'm saying. So these souls of the martyred believers under heaven's altar have to belong, they have to belong to those who will be killed for their faith in Christ during the tribulation period. Now, although many millions of people will die, and even billions, before it's all over, during the tribulation, <clears throat> many millions and billions will die. But yet, not all of these people who die will be martyrs. Many people, as we saw in our last lesson with those four horsemen, many people will be killed in wars. And others will die from the result of war, which is starvation, famines, diseases, pestilences, and um, from the natural disasters which are brought on by the Lord himself. The fourth seal, remember, brought that fearsome duo of death and hell. And we were told that one-fourth of the world was affected. You can remember the fourth seal, one-fourth of the world. Those who were swallowed up by hell can only refer to unbelievers, right? Because believers do not go to hell. So many of the people who will die during the tribulation will die and perish. 
they will not be um, up there under the altar in heaven. Only the believers will be in heaven. Now, as all of these atrocities begin to occur on the earth, men, this is just speculation, but men very possibly, when all these disasters are happening, many will probably look for a scapegoat. Isn't that what the world usually likes to do when something bad is happening? They like to have somebody to blame it on. And so men under, of course, the influence of the Satan-possessed Antichrist will want to lay the blame on someone for all of these catastrophes. And the Satan-possessed Antichrist will very gladly point to who? To the newly converted Christians. And why do I say newly converted? Because there will be no mature Christians during the tribulation period. There will not be any Christian in the tribulation who will be older by the time the Lord comes than seven years old, spiritually speaking. You know what I mean? Not, not age-wise. But none of them will have been a Christian for more than seven years. Most of them will be probably martyred before they reach the seven-year period. So there will all, it will be a world full of babe, baby Christians. And these are the ones after whom the Antichrist will, um, will go, you know, to try to martyr them. So consequently, many of these new converts will be martyred and they will seal their testimony for Christ with their own blood. Now, what does the fact that the martyred saints are seen under the altar in heaven, what does that indicate? Well, in Old Testament days, when the priest would present an animal sacrifice, its blood, he would he sacrificed the animal on the top of the altar, but then he would take the blood from that animal and he would pour it out at the base of the brazen altar. You can read about this in Leviticus chapter 4. The top of the altar where the animal's body was placed was the place of judgment. But the base of the altar, underneath the altar, that was the place of rest. You know, also blood in the scripture symbolizes life. The life of the, what, how does it go? The life of the body is in the blood? Is that the... Life of the flesh, that's it. The life of the flesh is in the blood. So blood symbolizes life, Leviticus 17, 11. Therefore, the souls of the martyrs under the altar indicate that their lives were given sacrificially to the glory of God, and now they are receiving the blessed rest that they deserve. Now, reading this portion of the scripture, as you can imagine, will really be a source of encouragement for those who will come to know Christ during the tribulation period. I mean, it's kind of a source of comfort for people living today who are being persecuted, and there are many, many people around the world who are being persecuted in horrible ways for their faith in Jesus Christ. We have it so well in this country. It's going to end soon. I don't know how many of you might have read Dr. James Dobson's latest letter, but we are not even in a post-Christian era anymore. We are going into an anti-Christian era here in America. And I told my children this weekend, I said, before it's all over, you, especially your generation, if the Lord doesn't come, you are going to have to learn how to deal with being persecuted. It's coming. It really is coming. But those who are persecuted today... I am sure if they open up and read this about the martyred tribulation saints, they can take comfort in knowing that um, they will immediately, even if they have to give their lives, they will immediately go into the presence of the Lord, and there they will receive their blessed rest, the rest that they deserve. And no more tears. You know, it's, it tells us when we get to chapter 7, we'll see that there shall be no more hunger, no more thirst, no more scorching heat. The Lord will lead them to the living fountains of water. And it says in 717, God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Many people crying around the world today because of their faith in Christ. So they can take great comfort in reading this part of the scripture. They will be reminded, as I said, that is the minute their lives are taken from them, they will go immediately to heaven to await the resurrection of the body. And they will also, of course, be, be clothed in heavenly white robes of righteousness. Now, how is it that these believers will have come? 
I want us to really seriously think about this because we're looking for the upper taker, right? We're look, not looking for the undertaker. We, the rapture could be very easily in our lifetime. It could be just right around the corner with the way things are going over there in the Middle East. And that's where we need to be looking at, okay, is the Middle East. And what's going on there tells us the signs of the times. And we're very close. So we really need to think about those who will be left behind in the tribulation period. Of course, we should be doing all we can to witness to people so they won't have to go through the tribulation period. But let's think about those who are in the world and will not be taken out of the world in the rapture because they are not members of the church. How will they come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, verse 9 gives us the clue because it tells us that they are slain for what? For the word of God. You see, when all of the church age Christians are suddenly removed from this world in the rapture, they will leave behind them. So this is where I want you to think about things. We just had our will. My husband and I just did our will yesterday. We had one, but we've redone it. And we made sure that we put in that will, you know, a, a, a real strong Christian testimony at the beginning and then again at the end for anyone left behind that will read our will. Um, we will leave behind us all of our Bibles, all of our Christian cassette tapes, all of our Christian music tapes, all of our tracks. Uh, I would encourage every one of you, if you have not done so, to either speak your testimony into a tape and record it or write it out because that will be left behind. Um, the, uh, the Christian bookstores, I hope, will be vacated. Nobody will be, I hope nobody will be working in them and they will be a stockpile. I mean, especially think of this country, how many commentaries and Christian things we, and, and radio stations, you know, they'll leave behind all of their, their uh, taped messages that they play over the airwaves. All of these things will be left behind. Children's books, you know, Christian children's books. The word of God and the message of the gospel will still be available here on planet Earth. Those things do not get raptured with us. And it is the word of God, isn't it, which is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's the word of God which will endure forever. You know, as it says, the grass may wither and the flower might fade, but the word of God shall stand forever. The Bible and the gospel message of the Bible will have just as much ability to transform lives during the tribulation period as it does today. Even though the Holy Spirit will be not involved in his restraining of evil ministry, he still will be involved in his salvation ministry. He still will be using his word to draw people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. In fact, you know, if you think about it, if someone picks up the Bible during the tribulation period and begins to read this book that you and I are studying today, the book of Revelation, they're not going to need a Bible teacher to explain it to them. I'm so glad of that because I don't want to have to be here to teach it to them. They won't need a Bible teacher to say what this symbol means and, you know, what this possibly might mean. Because everything to them, as they read through here, will be just as clear as their daily newspaper. Even clearer, because the newspaper can distort things, as we well know. Um, what they will be reading about in this book will actually literally being, being, beef, being, being fulfilled in the world around them. You know what I mean? It will be like listening to the 6 o'clock news, in other words. You know, that when they read about the two witnesses and, and they're killed and they're lying in the streets of Jerusalem, they'll know all about it because they will be on their TV screens and they'll say, wow, here it is in the book of Revelation. We don't have to worry. They're going to come alive, you know. And so I would imagine it'll be really exciting for people to study the book of Revelation in that time, in that day and age. And many good news. Remember one of the primary purposes for the tribulation period? is to save many, and that will be accomplished. So during the tribulation, there will be a continuing witness for Jesus Christ, and that witness will be his written word. 
And there will be other witnesses as well. Next week, we're going to look at 144,000 Jewish witnesses in chapter 7, verses 1 to 8. And then there will be, as I just mentioned, the two mighty witnesses that we'll read about in chapter 11. And the result of God's word being used by these zealous people will be the salvation of a great multitude of both Jewish people and Gentile people. Now, seeing so many people coming to Christ will provoke, as you can imagine, the wrath and the anger of Satan and consequently of the Antichrist. And so therefore they will set about very seriously persecuting Christians during the latter three and one half years of the tribulation. Also Israel, of course. Now in Revelation chapter 7 verses 9 to 14, John sees there standing before heaven's throne another tremendous group of people who he tells us come from all nations and all kindreds all peoples and all tongues and they are going to be martyred during the time of the great tribulation the last three and a half years and we are also told over in revelation 13 verse 15 That all of those who will not worship the image of the beast, remember when uh, the abomination of desolation occurs, when the Antichrist sets up an image of himself in the holy temple in Jerusalem, and everybody is commanded that they have to worship it, well, those who refuse to worship that image of the beast will be killed, we're told in Revelation 13.50. Now, not all of them will be killed because some of them will run into hiding. Um, But we do know that two-thirds, we are told elsewhere in the Bible, that two-thirds of all the Jews will be killed. Two-thirds. Only one-third will not perish. But, and not all of the Gentiles will be killed. Many of them will be, but not all of them. So there will be a remnant of living, saved believers, both Jewish and Gentile, when Christ does return at his second coming. But except those days be shortened, there would no saved be remaining, would there? Now in verse 10, John heard the cry of these slain tribulation saints. And they cry out a prayer request to the Lord, and they say this request in a loud voice. What does loudness denote? Urgency. What? Yeah, it just denotes their urgency in this. And what they say is, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? So the first response to the judgments of the Lamb, you know, we've, this is our fifth judgment we've seen as the fifth seal is loosed. The first response that we see to these judgments is the response of prayer, of urgent prayer. What these martyred tribulation saints essentially are asking is how long, Lord, are you going to allow the slaughter of those who love you, those who have come to you in faith? How long before you're going to send judgment on those who have murdered us? Now this request, as I mentioned earlier, gives us another indication that these martyred saints are not church saints. Because, as I said, this prayer does not fit the age of grace and the age of forgiveness in which you and I live. And both the Lord Jesus Christ and the first church martyr, who was the first church martyr? Stephen. Both of them set the example for us on how we are to pray for those who persecute us and may even kill us. What did they pray? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Stephen said, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. However, the church age, remember, ends at the rapture. The souls under the altar here in Revelation chapter 6 are those martyred during the tribulation age. And the tribulation age is an age of not grace, but judgment. Even though we see God's grace still working during it because many people are saved but it is primarily an age of judgment therefore their prayer is in accordance with the character of the age they are praying for God to vindicate 
himself. They, the great question that they really have here that they're asking, because that is a question, how long? The question there is not whether their enemies will be judged. See, they understand that eventually their enemies are going to be judged. But their question really is a question as to when. You know, how long? When are they going to be judged? Now, it's not really personal revenge either that they're seeking against those uh, actual individuals who might have taken their lives. It's really a cry for vindication of God's holiness and for the Lamb's holiness and for justice and for righteousness to, you know, at long last be established on earth in the place of the ungodliness which hates God and which hates God's Son and which hates God's people. They are praying really as the psalmist prayed in the imprecatory prayers in the Psalms, such as Psalm 74.10, where Asaph said this. He said, Oh God, how long shall the adversary reproach? Shall the enemies blaspheme thy name forever? Don't you sometimes ask that even? Now, how long is this going to go on with people taking your name in vain and just mocking you and not even considering you in their lives and their plans? You know, how long, Lord? And then also over in Psalm 94, verses 3 and 4, this question is asked, How long, Lord, shall the wicked triumph? How long shall they utter and speak hard things? And how long shall all the workers of iniquity boast themselves? Don't you get kind of tired of it sometimes? I know that I do, and I know you do too, if you love the Lord. Well, the answer that these martyr tribulation saints are given is found in verse 11. First of all, they are given white robes. And this, of course, speaks of their righteousness in Christ. And a lot of the commentators mention the fact here that there's a lot of debate about whether souls in heaven have some kind of a temporary body before they receive their resurrected glorified body. And it would seem here, because of the fact that they're given white robes to wear, that there must be, and don't ask me what kind of body it is because I wouldn't have any idea, but there must be some kind of a temporary body before we get our glorified resurrected bodies Um, like the Lord Jesus had when he was resurrected. Otherwise, these souls would have nothing to put their robes on. You know, there just would be a soul. (laughs) So because they're given a white robe, many of the theologians feel that there's some kind of a temporary body. Now, they're told, after they're given these robes, they're told to rest yet for a little season. Just a few more years, we know it'll be. And uh, they're told to rest until the martyrdom of their fellow servants and their brethren has been completed. Now, what this demonstrates, this answer, demonstrates that God in eternity past had already determined how many and who of the tribulation saints will be uh, martyred. How many and who will die during those seven years for the cause of Christ. The slain souls under the altar here are being assured, in effect, that their deaths were not part of some accident, but that they are they were by way of divine appointments, and that there are other divine appointments yet to be fulfilled. There are others yet to join them before it's all over. So even in the death of his people, God is in complete control. You can take comfort in that. Your death will not be by way of an accident, you know, coincidence, that when you leave this earth, it will be by way of a divine appointment. Your days are numbered. My days are numbered. He knows exactly when that day will occur. And precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints because that's when we go to be with him, and that's what he loves. That's why it's so precious to him. So there's truly nothing to fear, is there? Isn't it wonderful to be a Christian? There is nothing to fear in this life or in death. And it's a wonderful thing. Uh, Clara Dean was just telling me about the wonderful death, homegoing of her sister, and how she just raised her hand to receive the Lord's hand. And where are you, Clara? Yeah, well, it's beautiful. It's just beautiful to see a saint go home to be with the Lord. Now, at the time of this cry from the first 
batch of martyr tribulation saints in chapter 6, the total number of martyrs is not yet complete. God knows exactly what that number will be. He'll know when the last one comes home. Now, many more will not only be converted to Christ, but they will also encounter the acid test of their faith by facing death unless they deny him. That's what I was trying to bring home with my children. And probably telling myself the same thing, you know, are you willing to die for your faith? You really need to, we all need to settle that. Well, would I stand before a, um, what do they call those when there's a whole bunch of, firing squad. Would I stand before a firing squad for my faith? You know, do you know that in your heart that you would, rather than deny Christ? We might need to come to that point where we realize that, you know, would I or would I run? So, um, so they'll face the acid test of their faith by facing death. The many more who will die for the word of God and for the testimony which they hold will, we're told by John over in Revelation 13, 9, if you want to take a little peek at that, the many more, like they're told here, just wait until the rest of your brethren will, will be martyred. This group is going to be so large that John tells us here in Revelation 13, 9, that no, well, that, no, that's the wrong verse. I'm sorry. That's as if a man have a near. Anyway, I forget where it's written. But it says that there will be so many that they will be beyond counting. I mean, God knows the number, but men will not be able to count. So there will be many, many people coming to saving faith in Christ during the tribulation. So the divine answer then to the prayer of the tribulation saints of Revelation 6.10 is not no. That's not their answer when they say how long, you know, before you avenge your your holiness. But rather their answer is wait. God didn't say that he wasn't going to act in judgment upon the wicked. As a matter of fact, that's what he's in the process of doing. He didn't say that he wasn't going to vindicate his name and his people. It's simply that he, at this point in time, will not be finished bringing others to salvation and he will not be finished fulfilling the vast number of those who will be privileged to lay down their lives for the Lord Jesus Christ and it is a special privilege to die for Christ isn't it they receive a special martyr's crown in heaven for giving their life for Christ perhaps I thought about this perhaps like um I thought I had a picture, but I don't. Perhaps like Saul, not King Saul, but the Apostle Paul, before he became Paul, who watched Stephen die. You know, he was there holding the coats. Perhaps, um, and then, of course, he was converted later on. Perhaps there will be many persecutors of tribulation saints who will then, like Saul, come under conviction themselves. Like Saul, maybe they will be so troubled in their souls uh, by the power of the faith of those who are willing to die for what they believe in, um, that they will be converted. They will be drawn themselves to Christ. Perhaps they will be pricked in their conscience. Now think of this by the godly lives and the testimonies of those they knew before they were raptured. Maybe they will remember your life. Somebody you have come into contact with, somebody in your circle of influence may remember your godliness and your testimony. And because of that, be drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ during the tribulation. And perhaps they will realize how terribly wicked things have become under the rule and reign of the Antichrist. And we'll realize that things were a whole lot better when the church was around. So whatever the catalyst might prove to be, many, beyond counting, many people will come to know Christ and enter into his eternal kingdom during the seven-year tribulation period. God is not slack to judge wicked men and this wicked world, but praise the Lord, he is long-suffering. And he is even going to be long-suffering in the midst of the tribulation period itself when he is bringing down his judgment on earth. I mean, can you imagine when he's pouring out all these seal judgments and trumpet judgments and bowl judgments, which are just horrendous, even in the midst of that, he remembers mercy and grace.
So the tribulation saints under the under heaven's altar are told to wait a little season because all their fellow servants and their brothers aren't in the fold yet. However, when they are all in the fold, just as when Noah and his family were all safely in the ark, God will finally say to the others, those who are not in the safety of the ark, or those who are safely home, you know, in Christ, he will say, I have been patient long enough. I have given you more than sufficient time and opportunity to choose the safety and the grace which I provide. Those who have chosen to believe me are now all safely home. My spirit will no longer strive with men. And when God then closes the door, no man will be able to open it again. Those who are not safely inside will then be doomed to face his undiluted wrath. Well, with the loosing of the sixth seal, now we come to the sixth seal, we're going to learn of a different response to these tribulation judgments. And really, the response of these people, who we will look at next, their response should be that of prayer, like these martyred saints. And it should be a response of seeking refuge in the rock of ages, the Lord Jesus Christ. But instead, their response, their reaction to these judgments is that of fear and of hiding in the rocks of this world, which offer no true refuge whatsoever, no true safety at all. So let's look at the false refuge in the rocks. And for this, we'll look at verses 12 to 17. John says, And I beheld when he, again, this is the Lamb, Jesus Christ, had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood, and the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man, man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains, and said, now this is their prayer, and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? Well, when the Lamb opens the sixth seal, John beheld one of the most terrifying and catastrophic scenes in all of the book of Revelation. His first century experience, now remember, he's writing this from the first century A.D. He then attempted to describe for us, under, of course, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he attempted to describe for us this scene that he beheld. Now, those people who will be living during this dreadful time will probably think that this is the end. They will probably think that this is the end of the world, and yet it is still just the beginning. I'm not saying that this happens in the beginning of the tribulation, but it's still just the beginning of God's judgments because there is still one more seal judgment to go, right, after this, and there are seven more trumpet judgments to go. You can read about them up here. And there are seven more atrocious bowl or vile judgments to go. So as Jack MacArthur Sr., that's John MacArthur's father, said in his book on Revelation, this is merely the wind announcing the hurricane. It's merely the first raindrops of the torrential flood. The Bible teaches us that the great tribulation will both begin and end. This is my great artwork here. (laughs) That it will both begin and end with massive upheavals in the earth. You try to draw what this describes. It's not easy, believe me. Now, in, in the book of Joel, the little book of Joel, it's all about the day of the Lord. In that book, Joel says this, or God through Joel says, And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness. 
and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And Isaiah also wrote about this time when he said, and all the host of heaven shall be dissolved. That's like, you know, speaking of the the lights in the heaven. And the heavens shall be rolled together like a scroll, and all their hosts shall fall down. Revelation 6.12 here tells us that there is going to be a great what? Earthquake, which will rock the whole planet. And then disorder, chaos, will just reign supreme on this earth. And as I said, John described what he saw in the best way that he could. He said that the sun looked like it became black as sackcloth of hair. And that's dark. That's black, especially if you use my hair. Okay? It's dark. And the moon becomes as what? Blood. So that means the moon looks like it's red. And even the stars look like they're falling as unripe figs fall off of a fig tree when a mighty wind comes along. And then he described the heavens as appearing like they simply rolled up like a scroll. Remember before mini blinds became popular? I know in the house I grew up, we always we had shades. Isn't that what you call them? Shades. And, it, and sometimes you'd play around with that shade trying to get it back up, and then it would go... <laughs> it would go up. That's how the heavens will kind of look like. They just roll up like that. And this earthquake was so massive that it tells us it shook all the mountains and um, islands out of their set, established places. So literally, you know, the whole world is shaking and rocking. This will be true rock and roll. <laughs> Now, since this worldwide cataclysm has not yet occurred, aren't you glad for that, we can only really speculate about it. I can't be dogmatic and tell you exactly what's going to happen here. But we do know that earthquakes have been increasingly on the rise. There's hardly a moment when somewhere on this planet, the seismographs, those are the instruments which measure the earthquake or the shaking from an earthquake, when they're not recording a disturbance somewhere here on the earth. Professor R.A. Daly, in a book which he wrote called the, This Mobile Earth, states that in the past 4,000 years, earthquakes have caused the deaths of 13 million people. But he predicted that the worst earthquake is yet to come. Earthquakes have not only increased in their frequency, but they have also increased in their intensity. How is the intensity of an earthquake measured? By the Richter scale. Exactly. For example, about 100 years ago, in the period from 1880 to 1890, there was only one earthquake which measured over six on the Richter scale. However, in the decade from 1980 to 1990, there were 52 earthquakes which measured over six on the Richter scale. Dr. Robert Thymee um, tells about an earthquake which occurred on August 27, 1883, which blew up an entire island in the Dutch East Indies. He said that the sound was so loud that it could be heard 3,000 miles away. And as a result of that earthquake, the sun was blotted out of view. The sun became darkened. And volcanic ash, which was a result of usually volcanoes accompany earthquakes, the volcanic ash caused the moon to appear as red. Tidal waves from that particular quake traveled as far as Cape Horn, which was 7,000 miles away, and some 36,000 people were killed. Perhaps the catastrophic... Now, we don't know. I mean, maybe this is an earthquake like it says, but I'm going to show you why this also might be the result of a nuclear war. Perhaps this disaster caused by the Lord's loosening of this sixth seal, will be the result of a nuclear war. I mean, how would John have described a nuclear war back in the first century? He wouldn't know how to describe it. He would just say, well, you know, it looks like what we just read about here. God might really just be allowing man, you know, remember, the Holy Spirit will no longer be restraining evil. 
And so God might just allow man to kind of take care of his own judgment. Um, it's very possible that once the Holy Spirit does no longer restrain evil, that it won't take very long for men to be dropping nuclear bombs on one another. Actually, now the reason I say this, some of you might be upset and say, well, no, Catherine, we have to take the Bible literally. It says a great earthquake. But we go back to the original language, and the original language is Greek, and the original language there in verse, um, where does it say earthquake? Six, uh, 12, excuse me, where it says a great earthquake, the, the real word there in the Greek is seismos. And it literally means shaking, a great shaking. That's why they call those instruments seismographs. It comes from the word shaking. So what John really saw here was a great shaking. Now that could be the result of an earthquake, but it also could be the result of a nuclear holocaust. The prophet Haggai predicted this same great shaking in his book, um, and he predicted it prior to the coming of the desire of nations. Now, that little term, the desire of nations, is a messianic term for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a term for the Messiah. Here's what Haggai said in 2.6. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry lands, and I will shake all nations... And then the desire of nations shall come. Hal Lindsey, in his book called the New, There's a New World Coming, says this. He says, quote, Do you know what happens in a nuclear explosion? The atmosphere rolls back on itself, and this would look like the heavens rolling up as a scroll. It's this tremendous rush of air back into the vacuum that causes much of the destruction of a nuclear explosion. John's words in verse 14 are a perfect picture of an all-out nuclear exchange. When this happens, every mountain and island will be jarred from its present position. The whole world will literally be shaken apart. End of quote. So... Whether the heavens open and the earth shakes as a result of a massive earthquake or as a result of a nuclear war. Either way, the end result is catastrophic, isn't it? So what will be the response of the ungodly to this judgment of the sixth seal? Well, as we already said, it will be that of great fear. As you can imagine, if you were in this position yourself, it will be great fear for everybody living on the earth. But fortunately, I think this will draw many people to Christ. But for the ungodly, um, from the mightiest men of the ungodly I'm speaking about now, down to the common man, tremendous fear is going to grip their hearts. However, this is the part I can't even begin to understand. Because of their willful and their stubborn and their rebellious ways, instead of turning to God for forgiveness and for salvation, do you know what they try to do? They try to hide from him. Kind of exactly what Adam did at the beginning, right? (laughs) Same old thing, tried to hide from God. Well, verse 15 tells us, And the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every free, free man hid themselves where? In the dens and in the rocks of the mountains. Isaiah told us about this exact same thing when he said in Isaiah 2.19, And they shall go into the holes in the rocks and into the caves of the earth for fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty when he ariseth to shake terrible the earth. You know, Dr. Vance Havner once said that there is going to come a day when the most valuable piece of real estate is going to be a hole in the ground. (laughs) And he's right. Those people will be the happiest who live near holes in the ground or caves. Now, men will reluctantly, reluctantly recognize, they don't want to recognize this, but they do, that the one whom they have rejected 
is now speaking to them in his wrath. Yet rather, this is what is so amazing to me. They know where this wrath is coming from, and yet they don't repent. Rather than falling on their faces and praying for forgiveness, and rather than acknowledging Christ's lordship over their lives and submitting to him in faith, instead they turn to praying to the mountains and to the rocks. You know, isn't this just like stubborn, rebellious man? He would far rather worship the creation than the creator. Rather than seeking refuge in the rock of ages, you know, in the cleft of the true rock, the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone could truly save them, they beg the mountains and the rocks to fall on them and to hide them. Here's what they say. They say, look at verse 16. This is their prayer. Another title for this message could have been two great prayer meetings, couldn't it? Because you had the prayer meeting in heaven with the souls under the altar, and now you got this prayer meeting of the ungodly on earth. And they say, fall on us and hide us from the face of, of him that sitteth on the throne. Do they know where this is coming from? Yes, hide us from God and hide us from the wrath of who? The Lamb. They know where this is coming from. And yet, are they praying to God and to the Lamb? No. They're praying. They're talking to the mountains and to the rocks. I mean, I can, I'm can. i laughing, but it's really sad. It's really tragic. It's all like Rev, uh, Romans chapter 1. Man would far rather worship the creation than the creator. They're really just like the demons, aren't they? I mean, the demons who will be running rampant over earth during this period of time also believe in God. Of course they believe in God. I mean, before they fell, they saw God. They saw God face to face. They saw Jesus Christ. They believe in God. They believe in Christ. And, and what do they do? What does it tell us in James 2.19? They believe and tremble. Well, that's exactly how these people are going to be. They believe in God. They believe in Christ, and they are even trembling. But is this saving belief? Is this saving faith? Of course it isn't. You know, that's why there's so many people out there who say, oh, yeah, I believe in God. I'm not an atheist. I believe in God. I even believe in Jesus Christ. But that might not be saving belief unless they submit. Do the demons submit to him? No, they're still in rebellion. They will never submit. And it's the same way with these people here. They're no better than the demons. Men will not yield to the love of God and to the mercy of God and to the forgiveness of God, then there will be no means of escape for them from the wrath of God. Wealth, we see this, wealth, you know, the mighty men, the kings, the great men, wealth, rank, power, prestige, popularity, beauty, nothing, absolutely nothing will deliver a person in that day from the wrath of the Lamb unless he or she falls on her knees in worship of the Lamb. And it's a whole lot better now in the day and age we're living in, the age of grace, to just fall down and worship the Lamb and never even have to worry about encountering the wrath of the Lamb. And thinking of that term, the wrath of the Lamb, isn't that kind of a paradox? Wouldn't you expect it to be the wrath of the lion? I mean, he's been called the lion of the tribe of Judah already in this book. But the wrath of the Lamb, to most people, that's quite a paradox. Um, you know, perhaps many people, I hope not us, but many people have been so used to hearing about the gentleness and the meekness and the love and the kindness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps in, you know, so many Sunday school classes and in so many churches, all they hear about is the love of Christ and etc. that seldom they might think about his holiness and about his justice. We need to remember that the same Christ who said, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls, is the one who made a scourge of cords and chased out the money changers from the temple. The same one who very gently said, Suffer the children, little children, to come unto me, and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God, is he who called the religious rulers of Israel, what? 
vipers. Oops, I don't have a picture of that. He called them vipers and also whited sepulchers full of dead men's bones. And the kindly Jesus who washed his own disciples' feet is the same one who cursed a figless fig tree. Christ's wrath. The Lamb's wrath is the evidence of his holy love for all that is good and righteous. And it's the evidence of his holy hatred against all that is evil and unrighteous. Christ would not be worth worshiping. He would not be worth our worship if he did not deal justly with evil in this world. And that is why God warned the world about the righteous indignation of his son when he inspired the psalmist in Psalm 2 to write these words. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings and O ye presidents. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss, don't you love those words? I love these words. Kiss the son lest he be angry and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Oh, there's that picture. Uh, Blessed are all they that put their trust in the Lord. God warned the world about the wrath of his son, about the wrath of the lamb. Well, to summarize then, the first six seal judgments, which will begin the tribulation period, we have seen that the Antichrist, up here, represented on the white horse, will assume his power peacefully. That's why he has the bow with no arrows. But once he is in a position of great power, then what does he do? He goes forth conquering and to conquer. And that gets a lot of nations uptight. And so the next result is that of wars and of much bloodshed represented by the second horse, the red horse. And this war always results in skyrocketing inflation, and this will cause many um, food shortages and bring famine and starvation to many people on the earth, represented by the third horse, the horse, uh, the black horse. And then, of course, along with that will come tremendous um, pestilences and diseases, and one-fourth of the world will die. And that is represented by the pale, sickly pale fourth horse. Fortunately, many will come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, but a countless multitude of them will pay for their testimony with their own lives. Oh, I know where that passage is where it says that you couldn't count them. That's in Revelation 7-9. I gave you the wrong verse before. 7-9. They'll pay for their testimony with their own lives in a great persecution of God's people as the world looks for those upon whom they can put the blame for all of these uh, catastrophes. Well, the persecution, and that's represented by the fifth seal uh, when we looked at the martyred tribulation saints under the altar. The persecution of God's people will be followed by a worldwide catastrophe which will literally shake the atmospheric heavens and the entire globe of this earth. The ungodly will know that God and Christ is not happy with them for having killed his people. And just like Adam, after he sinned, they will attempt to hide themselves from him. Of course, it's impossible to hide yourself from God. So, is all of this Christ's wrath? Or is this Satan's wrath? Or is this mankind's wrath on one another? Whose wrath is it? It's it's God's wrath. It is Christ's wrath. We always have to remember, who is the one loosening the seals? It is the lamb. It's Christ's wrath. Despite the human or demonic instruments who may cause these international wars and, of course, the resulting crisis and food shortage and the pestilences, the diseases, and the massive loss of lives as well, um, and possibly even, even the, the global shaking of a nuclear holocaust that would be a result of of man yet 
regardless of all these things, these human and demonic instruments, it is ultimately Jesus Christ who is in control. He is the one who is loosing the seals, and his sovereign plan prevails despite the inhumanity of man in this depraved demonic society which will be existing. Whose wrath is this? If you really want to know, look at verse 17. It says, for the great day of his wrath is come, and that his goes right back to the Lamb. Well, after stating that the great day of the Lamb's wrath has come, the question is asked, and I don't know who's asking this question here. It may be John. I'm not sure. But the question is asked at the very end of this chapter, who shall be able to stand? And it is that question which is then answered in chapter 7. So see, the book of Revelation isn't really complicated. It's not hard to follow. The answer, the question is asked, and then we're given the answer. There are going to be two groups of people who will be able to stand firm during this time of tremendous catastrophic judgment. One group consists of sealed Jews. These are not the Jehovah's Witnesses. These are Jews, and we will look at them in chapter 7, verses 1 to 8. And the second group consists of saved Gentiles. We've already kind of talked about them this morning. And those we will look at in verses 9 to 17. So these two groups, then, are what we are going to discuss in our lesson next week as we look at the parenthetical chapter 7 before we then get to the loosening of the seventh seal, which occurs in Revelation chapter 8. So we're moving right along, aren't we? We're actually picking up some speed here.